All right, back to the Schofield 1917 Study Bible. We have covered all the dispensations. How many dispensations were there? Seven. Seven. I'm sure you have them memorized. I won't even ask to see if you do, all right? But hopefully you do. Um, and that leaves us with what to cut finished up. We got to finish the covenants. And then at some point we'll do kind of a historical overview, maybe summarize dispensationalism down to maybe four or five basic tenets of dispensationalism. We'll do that. Uh, we'll probably do that maybe tonight. And then if we can finish this all in this hour, then the next hour we'll start uh, something completely new. So that's the plan, but we, we'll, we'll see because we get into this, we never know exactly how long this may take us, all right? So here's what I'm going to do. If you're using the Schofield Study Bible from 1917, I'm jumping to Hebrews chapter 8. And the reason I'm jumping to Hebrews chapter 8 is because Schofield... Under, uh, under this section in Hebrews 8, he gives the eight covenants summary. So I'm going to use the summary to summarize all the covenants we've already covered. And then we have two covenants to go, right? Which two covenants do we have remaining? The Davidic and the new, all right? So we will, we'll, we'll get into this. But I thought his summarizing here was of, of benefit because it helped us kind of put this all back together. And there's still... The Palestinian covenant, I'm still somewhat perplexed the way he handles it. And I don't know if I still have a good grasp for the reason he does the way he does. But we'll talk about that in a minute when we get down to it. All right, here we go. So I don't know if this is in your editions or not. If it is, great. If it's not, I'll go through this slowly so that you can understand. All right, here we go. The eight covenants summary. The first covenant, we all know that, was the Edenic covenant. As Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to give you the scripture, uh, the scriptures that he provides for it here. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And what did the uh, Edenic covenant do? It conditioned the life of man in innocency. The Edenic covenant gave the condition for man's life in innocency. And what was that condition? What was the condition? Yeah, don't eat the tree, right? Don't eat of the tree, okay? That was the condition. If they did that, what was going to happen? They obviously weren't going to be innocent anymore because they now were going to know good and evil, all right? Okay, and then, of course, they would no longer be in Eden as well and all of the, the issues, okay? So the Edenic covenant did what? Condition the life of man in innocency. See how it links together the first dispensation? All right, the first dispensation of innocency. All right, number two, which was? The Adamic covenant, Genesis 3, 14 through 19. It conditions the life of fallen man and gives promise of redeemer. All right? It conditions the life of fallen man. Basically, what it says is now that you've fallen, here's going to be the conditions which you're going to find yourself living, right? And so there were all the different issues that are going to happen as a result of the fall. All right? So, and it gives the promise of a redeemer, all right? And where would that, what verse would they give to be the promise of a redeemer? 315, and remember, there's, there's some debate in church history over that, but okay, we won't get into all, all of that. Um, okay, we won't, yeah. Number three, <laughs> that'll, do, that'll get us way off track. All right, the next covenant, the Noahic covenant. Genesis chapter nine, verse one. It establishes the principle of what? Human government, yes. And once again, are we seeing how it connects to what? The dispensations. It connects to the dispensations, all right? Okay, it established the uh, principles of human government. That's the Noahic covenant. All right. Then this comes to the fourth covenant, the one that's very important. This one is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. Now, what, what, what do we need to remember about the Abrahamic covenant? It's unconditional. And it's distinct from its dispensation because the dispensation typically maintains a test and a failure, right? All right, so the Abrahamic covenant... 
as Genesis 15. It says, finds and founds the nation of Israel. That's very important. And confirms with specific additions the Adamic promise of redemption. Right? But it, uh, so this is very important. They, they, he's stating that the Abrahamic covenant founds the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. See how he stated that? Not the people of God, but the nation of Israel. So therefore, if a covenant was made with the nation of Israel, and if that covenant was what? Unconditional, then the promises of the Abrahamic covenant has to be for the nation in some way, shape, or form. Do you see how that could have major hermeneutical implications moving forward? Okay, major, major hermeneutical implications moving forward. All right, there's much we could talk about that, but we will want the next The Mosaic Covenant. Now, does everyone remember? Can you look at your notes? What did Schofield have to say about the uh, the dispensation that would somehow sometimes be connected to the Abrahamic Covenant? Well, no, that's the Mosaic. The promise, right? What did he say about the dispensation of promise? Did he not connect that to the Abrahamic Covenant? But then he... he Okay, right. So there was a dispensation of promise. They, they, the law ends it. And why did they say that it ended it? No, did, remember, remember Schofield's whole kind of interesting take on that? That when they, that the, they had a dispensation of promise with all of the promises found in the Abrahamic covenant, but when God gave them the law, they irrationally said, we will do the law walking away from the dispensation of promise, okay? So that's where they, they, they kind of walked away from it. But even though that ended the dispensation, according to Schofield, it did not end the covenant, all right? That's very important. That's where he draws that distinction. Everybody remember that? Okay, good. I don't want to have to go back and work through all of that again, but that's very important, all right? The next was... The Mosaic Covenant, which is Exodus in chapter 19, and it condemns all men for that all have sinned. I love that. So what does the Mosaic Covenant do? It condemns everybody. Everyone is condemned in the Mosaic Covenant. Why is everyone condemned in the Mosaic Covenant? Well, the Mosaic Covenant condemns everyone, and I want to make sure everyone writes this down in all capital letters with 15 exclamation points. No one can keep it, unsaved or saved. No one can keep it, saved or unsaved. Now, immediately you put saved there, 99% of your Christian friends will disagree with you because they think they can. The fact that they think they can, they need to seek mental help because they cannot. They have to be delusional to think that they can. Because what does God's law demand? All those things that we listed, right? Okay, all that stuff, (laughs) all that stuff, right? It's an internal, external, right? It's obedience and mind, words, desire, feeling, Action and it must be complete, it must be perfect, it must be exact, and it must be perpetual, right? Remember that the minute you, anytime you take someone's life, no matter how good it may appear to be, and you lay it next to God's law, failure, all right? And as I don't, it may have been CFW Walther who said it, or it may have been Martin Luther who said it. What makes a good work a good work? God has forgiven it. Which is a powerful, powerful statement. What makes your good work a good work? God has forgiven it. Because even your good work needs what? Forgiveness. All right? I wish every Christian could understand that. Because what most Christians do is, what proves my salvation? Oh, look, 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 look. I got MacArthur's test. I'm doing a good job. No, no, no. Your good works that you think you're doing needs to be forgiven. Because your good works are filthy rags, right? I don't know why the evangelical world has lost that that teaching, but we've completely abandoned it, right? So I will state again 
99, maybe I can't give a specific uh, statistic, but using a little bit of hyperbole, basically 99% of evangelicalism is simply Catholicism in disguise. Because it's just returned to a Catholic understanding. In fact, they're better Catholics than Catholics. I don't, most people should leave their Protestant church and go to a Catholic church. Just go back to Rome. That's where you want to go. But they don't want to go back to Rome. And I say it over and over and over. Why do they not want to go back to Rome? Not because they disagree on the view of salvation. Because they want to be in charge. They want to be able to open the Bible and say, you're wrong! Because you can't do that in the Catholic church. Because they'd be like, you don't have the power or the right to do that. So just take a walk. So that's, um, Yeah. But I cannot, that's so important, all right? No one can keep it. The minute I say that, I know everyone's going to disagree. That's okay. What, what I always say is, you, whenever, whenever I try to convince people this, don't argue with me about it. Just do what? What do I always say when it comes to this, argue, this point? Just do it. Just do it. If you think you can, you live your life doing it. I will live my life knowing I don't do it, and we don't really have a problem. Just go do it. But that's not good enough. That's not good enough. Because people want you to have to acknowledge that somehow that we can do it. But I, I know I can't. If you think you can, congratulations, all right? The next covenant, which is the weird one. It's an important one. It is the... Which is it? Come on. The Palestinian, remember the one I tell everyone we have to remember, we have to remember. The Palestinian covenant covers Deuteronomy 28 to 30, right? It secures the final restoration and conversion of Israel, and that is the confusing part to me. He believes the Palestinian covenant does what? Secures the final restoration and conversion of Israel. And I think the reason he does so is because the Palestinian covenant seems to indicate Hey, do this, right? And you will live. You don't do this, you will die. It definitely is very much a works-based covenant. But in, in, in the midst of that covenant, it seems to be a, a promise that basically goes, remember we looked at that section in Deuteronomy, I think it was 28. It seems to indicate, hey, you're not going to do this. You're going to fail. You're going to go into captivity, but I will restore you to where? To the land, to the land, to the land. So I, I typically would see the covenant more as a conditional covenant that says you have to do this or you're going to die. He kind of he adds a little to it and he more focuses on not the fact that they're not going to keep it, but somehow in the midst of that covenant that he's going to do what? He's going to restore them. Or as he, as he put it, let me read it directly, secures the final restoration. Please note, the final restoration, meaning all any other returning to the land was never the final one because the final one is what kind of one? A complete one, right? And, and the conversion of Israel. Please note, do you see that last, those last three words? Conversion of Israel, conversion of Israel, conversion of Israel. You may want to circle that or write those down. And why is that important? That immediately distinguishes dispensationalism from all, from other theological systems. Do other theological systems believe in a future conversion of Israel? No. In fact, they say there's not a future conversion for the nation of Israel. They believe that Israel is, has been replaced by the church. So when it says all Israel will be saved in Romans, guess what someone will tell you? That's the church. Even though we walk through that entire chapter, right? We walk through that entire chapter. And how does, how do all of a sudden you get to that verse and you make it the church is beyond my comprehension. I do not know how someone can read that. And it's, it's just, once again, it just demonstrates re, I don't like clearly, I don't even know how to state this. Clearly all those rules you learn about reading in school. And reading comprehension, something, either our rules of reading comprehension are wrong, right? Like completely wrong, or they're just useless, or people don't follow them. I don't know what the problem is. But if we go back to Romans, Romans, what is it, 11 or 12? Or I think it's 11. 
uh, 10 and 11. If you look at those chapters, I don't know how you draw the conclusion. Everyone know where it says uh, all Israel will be saved in Romans? Everybody find it real quick, just so that you'll see this. Because I, it, I just don't, I wish I had a better answer here. I wish I, I had a good answer to why this happens, but I don't have a good answer. If anyone else can figure this out, by all means, write a book and you'll be rich. Because chapter 10 or 11, 11, okay, all right. Now, if you go back to chapter 11, verse 1, just so that you see, again, the, the context here. Remember, we worked through this again, and I'm just baffled by it. I say then, hath God cast away his people? Now, who could that people be? Could that be the church? Well, why do we not think it's the church? Because Paul literally says, God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of That clearly has nothing to do with the church, right? That's the nation of Israel. And then look at verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh, but uh, the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them spirit of slumber, eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear unto this day. Who is he referring to? It's referring to Israel being blinded. That's not the church being blinded, right? That would not make any sense. So that's the nation Israel. Okay, and then he goes on, let their eyes be darkened, he quotes. And then he, uh, he goes to what, verse 13? For I speak to you Gentiles, and so much as I'm the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. All right, he begins to talk about Israel. And then where's the famous verse? Verse 20, was it 20? 26, like if you go here, um, verse 25, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. That blindness in part has happened to, who's Israel? The nation, right? All right, that's not the church until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. The nation has been blinded. And do you know what it says there? Blinded until. It didn't say completely, right? Forever. Until what? The fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel will be saved. And then it quotes from the Old Testament, right? I don't know how you read that and all of a sudden say, Israel, it's the nation, it's the nation, it's the nation, it's the nation. And then when it says Israel all be saved, that's no longer the nation, that's the church. How do you do that? Like, I don't understand that. I don't understand. I, I just don't understand how people can do that. And if you can figure out why people do that, then I, we, we, we really should try to articulate that. I'm going to argue, here's my speculation. Uh, what, do you, what do you think causes people to read it that way? What do you think is the cause? I, th- I, have, a, I have a hypothesis. But what do you think it leads people to do that? But even if you spiritualize this in 10, there's no way to read 11 and spiritualize that because I've already demonstrated in chapter 11, verse 1. I mean, he's clearly talking about the nation. So what leads to this to happen? I, I, our entire study of dispensationalism, I've been trying to make one major point that I've now repeated 37,000 times. Do what? There you go. Okay, good. I, I, the system becomes your hermeneutic. So if you go to an all-millennial church or you go to a reformed church, they're going to tell you Israel is spiritual Israel. And then when you read chapter 11, and it says all Israel is going to be saved, it's, it's spiritual Israel. And, 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 it's, and when, even when you back them up and try to read it through it, they still will argue with you. And it's mind-blowing because it's like, look, I... I you, you may not, you may hate dispensationalism. You may hate tri, uh, premillennialism. You may hate all of that stuff. And I understand that there could be reasons to hate it or to mock it. But for crying out loud, it doesn't matter what your system is. The text is supposed to be king, right? So basic reading comprehension there. I don't know how you can jump through a hoop and go, that's not Israel. That's not Israel. That's the church. Well, 
Was the church blinded? Well, no, 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 no. That's not the church. So the church shows up when it says all Israel will be saved. Then magically now that's the church. That makes no sense. So, um, but what's, uh, hey, let's make it, let's be fair. There are those who are guilty of that reading the system into the text and dispensationalists are just as guilty of reading other things into the text that may not be there. That's why you cannot be bound by a system. You're supposed to be bound by caring about what the text says. But it's hard to get people to actually study the text because when you're having those back and forths, what do people have a tendency to do when you're having the disagreement? Everybody runs home, grabs their phone, and they do a search for an article that proves their point, meaning they're going to go to an article that reinforces their system. If you try to tell them to put their stuff down and go look up every place in the Bible where the word Israel occurs and read every reference, will they do that? If you say, look all, look all of these references up, look all these, they won't do that because they, because it requires hours and 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 hours of work. Most churches won't even do that. But then that demonstrates your loyalty as to what? System over the text. And once your loyalty is system over text, then you're, you're, are you any better than a Roman Catholic? It's not sola scriptura. It's sola system. It's, all, it's always been sola system. And anyone who says otherwise, we, we just lie to ourselves. Because to, be, to, to people who are really committed to the text, they would spend the hours and hours and hours doing a Bible study method, whether it's topical, thematical, biographical. They would be hour after hour into the text. And nobody, nobody wants to put forth that much work. So everyone just argues their system. So uh, there's the Palestinian. I cannot explain to you the importance of that. All right, then number seven. Here we go. The next one is the Davidic covenant. Now, we're not going to read this summary here. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to spend the time here. 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right. 2 Samuel chapter 7, all right? Now, um, in my edition of Schofield, um, he has verses 1 through 3, all right? And he calls that David's desire to build the Lord's house at 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 3, all right? Everybody see that? And then it starts right underneath verse 3. It says the seventh, uh, the seventh or Davidic covenant, and then it then it starts, and I don't know how far it goes down. Um, he has it probably all the way down to probably seventeen, right? Probably all the way down to seventeen. But then underneath all of that, he has yeah eight through actually he has it through eight through seventeen, but he puts the note at four. All right. And if you look at verse eight, Second um, Samuel seven eight. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, right? He, he says he took him from, as he has it here, the sheep coat, C-O-T-E. That's how it's uh, translated here in this one. Uh, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies, and out of thy sight have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Immediately it all starts with what God has done for David, right? I was with thee. And then what does he start in verse 10? Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall their children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before a time. Now he starts seeming to make a promise to Israel that we don't feel has what? Completely ever occurred, yes? All right. And then you can continue to read everything that happens here. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this down the way Schofield breaks it down and get the major points of this covenant, all right? So here's what he says, the the Davidic covenant. This covenant upon which the glorious kingdom of Christ of the seed of David according to the flesh is to be founded. 
So the Davidic covenant is the covenant upon which the glorious kingdom of Christ of the seed of David, according to the flesh, is to be founded. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of Christ, we have to ask ourselves some important theological questions even before we get to the rest. I'll let you write that down. Anybody need me to repeat it? The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 17. This covenant, upon which the glorious kingdom of Christ, that's the key phrase, the glorious kingdom of Christ, of the seed of David according to the flesh, is to be founded. And then it says secures, and he's going to give some things it secures. But when we talk about the glorious kingdom of Christ, we have to, we have to draw, we have to come to some important conclusions here. All right? So I'll let everyone write that down, and then we'll, we'll discuss this part, because this is important. All right, when we talk about the glorious kingdom of Christ, here's the ultimate question. Is the glorious kingdom of Christ a spiritual kingdom alone? Or is it a spiritual kingdom, but will also have an actual physical manifestation in some way, shape, or form? Some will say it's just a spiritual kingdom, right? Okay, and Jesus seemed to imply that at times, did he not? If my kingdom was of this world, my followers would fight. So in that sense, he seems to indicate it's a spiritual kingdom. So some preachers, teachers, or Christians sitting in the pew will run to those verses and say, my kingdom is not of this world. Why are you people looking for any physical manifestation? Others will say there is a spiritual aspect of it. But there will be a physical manifestation where Christ himself will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and will rule and reign. Christianity is divided on this point. Okay? Now, why would one, why would some want a physical rule reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years? Why would some demand a physical rule, a physical reign? That the, the, yeah, the reason some would demand this is they believe, well, wait a minute, we have to have some place in a sense where David is ruling and reigning, right? Which they say is Christ. Now, Dr. J. Vernon McGee believes it was a resurrection of David, but that's a whole, we can get into that whole craziness. Okay, but But let's just say they believe Christ has to rule and reign and he has to rule and reign over Israel so that Israel will be given all of the promises made in those earlier covenants, right? Which would include land, 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 right? So that's what it all comes down to. Now let's see how Schofield handles this. He says that this covenant secures the following. You ready? Number one, a Davidic house. Posterity, family, a Davidic house. Now we're going to play a little game here and we'll see how well we do here. All right, you ready? All right, Second, so it's open book. Second Samuel 7, you can start in verse 4 and you can go to verse 17. That's your open book, all right? Everybody ready? Find where you think it secures or promises a Davidic house slash posterity slash family. See if you can find it. Okay, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay. Um, Okay, Okay. over 16. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Okay, well, there's a lot of forevers there. Okay, we have a house. We have a house talked about, yes. Okay, right. Yeah, definitely talking to David, right? Anything else that you would point to? Uh, 
And in verse seven says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he committeth iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away before thee. So whoever this is going to be, it seems they're going to rule, they're going to reign, and there's some kind of eternality to it, some kind of, like, it will last. It's connected to a house. So you can get some of the idea of a Davidic house. He doesn't explain exactly what that means, but at least we get the basic idea, all right? Number two, a throne. I think we can all see that. Can we see that in that text? Okay, where would you point to for the throne? And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. And thy throne shall be established forever. Everybody see that? So there's the house, there's the kingdom, and there's the throne. See all three terms used in 16? House, kingdom, throne. Okay. There's the throne. He, they call this royal authority. All right. Next, a kingdom. I think we see the kingdom, do we not? Same verse, right? All right. This is sphere of rule. So the Davidic house, basically posterity family. A throne is royal authority. Kingdom is sphere of rule. And then next, in perpetuity. Forever. Do we see the forevers? We see the forevers. How many forevers there just, I think, in verse 16? We have two. Do we not? Yeah, 13, that says forever. Yes. Forever. A lot of forevers, yes? And typically, I mean, I know we've had some issues, but I think typically we believe forever means Forever, at least that's that's what we thought. Or at least that that was we we had some issues. For <laughs> we may be the only church in history who's ever argued over the word forever. Okay, but all right. So so we got those part. A, a Davidic house, a throne, a kingdom, and perpetuity. And then this is what he has for number five, right? So we have a Davidic house, a throne, a kingdom, and perpetuity. It secures all of that. Okay, and then he says number five. He has this listed as number five, which is not really another thing it secures, but this is how he, he, he writes it out. And this fourfold covenant has but one condition. He says there's a condition to this. All right, here we go. Now listen carefully. Thinking caps on, All right? So does the Davidic covenant have a condition. He says it does. Are you ready? Everybody listening? This is very important. Here we go. Disobedience in the Davidic family is to be visited with chastisement, but not to the abrogation of the covenant. One condition in the Davidic, uh, one condition is disobedience in the Davidic families to be, to be visited with what? Chastisement. Look at, I think, verse, is it, uh, what, you can look at 2 Samuel uh, 7. I think he talks about a possible chastisement or judgment here. Look at verse 15, or four, is it 14? And I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he committeth iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Look at verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. Everybody see that? Okay. So, disobedience in the Davidic family is to be visited with chastisement, but not the abrogation of the covenant. The chastisement fell first and the division of the kingdom under whom? Who was the kingdom divided under? He doesn't list Solomon. Rehoboam, right? Rehoboam. And finally, in the captivities, since that time, but one king of the Davidic family has been crowned at Jerusalem. 
I said, all right, so it, the, he's, he really focuses the chastisement as really starting with Rehoboam. He's really kind of, and then the captivities that happen after, all right? Everybody got that? And then he says, but one king has been crowned in Jerusalem. One Davidic king has been crowned in Jerusalem since that time. Who was the, who was the king crowned in Jerusalem at that time? Christ. And how was he crowned? With thorns. All right. Now, obviously, demonstrating that the first time he came, they didn't receive him as king. They mocked him and they killed him, right? Okay. And he goes on to say, but the Davidic covenant confirmed to David by the oath of Jehovah and renewed to Mary by the angel of Gabriel, 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 if I can say his name correctly, is immutable. Everybody see that? The Davidic covenant confirmed to David by the oath of Jehovah and renewed to Mary by the angel Gabriel is immutable. I want to, make, I want to write that down. It is immutable. And the Lord God will yet give to that thorn-crowned one the throne of his father. And he seems to believe that that throne will be given to... Who, who will that ultimately be? To Christ. And it will be... Does, is, does Schofield seem to be indicating it's going to be a spiritual or a literal one? Okay, well, the, I, just the key from a reading, I'll read it again. And the Lord God will yet give to that thorn-crowned one the throne of his father David. He has to be obviously speaking of a literal one, because if you believe there was a spiritual kingdom, then the spiritual kingdom would have already been in existence in 1917, yes? All right, he's not pointing to the spiritual kingdom. He is pointing to a literal kingdom. All right? Now, and he gives a bunch of scriptures, so let's at least look these up. I'll go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. 31 through 33. Oh, I don't know if we're going to make it. We're going we're to move quickly. Luke 1, 31 through 33. Tell me when you're there. All right, Luke 1. I was there, and then my pages got stuck together. All right, here we go. Luke 1, he says 31 to 33, right? Okay, uh, I'll start in verse 31. Luke uh, 1, 31. And behold, thou shalt uh, conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of the kingdom there shall be no end. Again, do we believe that to be a literal kingdom, or do we believe that just to be a spiritual kingdom? Well, clearly Schofield thinks it's a literal, because in 1917 he says it's yet to come. Does that make sense? All right. The next one is Acts 2, 29 through 32. Acts 2, 29 through 32. Acts chapter 2. Alright. Acts 2, starting, what, verse 29, he says. Alright, here we go. Um, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you. Uh, of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried in a sepulcher is with us unto this day, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. Now, 
that he, he quotes that to believe that there's going to come a time where Jesus will obviously sit on a literal throne. Others would say that that points to something spiritual. He also has here Acts 15, 14 through 17. Acts 15. Acts 15. And what's significant about Acts 15? Council of Jerusalem, right? I'm going to start in verse 13. Acts 15, starting in verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. Now he's quoting from the Old Testament, is he not? After this, I will return and will build again the the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doth all these things. Know unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. What is he quoting from there? Because he says, as, uh, as it is written. What is he quoting from? Do we have a cross-reference? See who can find a cross-reference. See if y'all can find it. Pretty important if he's quoting from the Old Testament. Is he quoting Amos? Is it Amos 9? Remember, we've read Amos 9, have we not? Amos 9, do we want to look for it? Is it Amos 9, 11 through 12? All right, let's go to let's go to Amos chapter 9. See what we find. Amos 9, 11 through 12. Amos chapter 9. Remember we've read this now multiple times. We should have this one down by now. Amos 9, 11 through 12. And that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof and I will raise up the ruins and I will build us into the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. He's, he's referencing Amos chapter 9 right here. Schofield points to that as demonstrating what he believes to be what? The pointing fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which he believes requires that the Lord will yet give to his thorn-crowned one the throne of his father, David. Everybody see all of that? Everybody got that? Everybody see? So he believes all of those scriptures require that at some point Jesus will sit on the throne and it will be what kind of a kingdom? It's got to be literal because, again, in 1917, if you write a note that says he will yet give him the throne, that would seem to indicate that he, in 1917, hadn't had it yet. Well, obviously, if he's referencing the spiritual kingdom, he doesn't even reference the spiritual kingdom, does he? Now, you can say whether that's a good thing or whether that's a bad thing, but he does not reference it in any way, shape, or form. But clearly, he believes there has to be a literal kingdom. All right? Are we good to go there? Now go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Well, there's a lot more we could say about the Davidic covenant, but you get the basic idea. Go back to Hebrews chapter 8. In the Schofield Bible, if you are using the notes. All right. 
Now, I'm going to give the summary, once again, of all the covenants. Here we go. Now, we're going to add the, uh, the, uh, the, mess, uh, the messianic, the Davidic covenant. Here we go. The Adenic covenant conditioned the life of men in innocency. The Adamic covenant conditions the life of fallen men and gives promise of a redeemer. The Noahic covenant establishes the principles of human government. The Abrahamic covenant founds the nation of Israel and confirms with specific additions the Adamic promise of redemption. The Mosaic covenant condemns all men for all have sinned. The Palestinian covenant secures the final restoration and conversion of Israel. The The Davidic covenant establishes the perpetuity of the Davidic family fulfilled in Christ and of the Davidic kingdom over Israel and over the whole earth to be fulfilled in and by Christ. And there's a lot more scriptures he gives here as well, but we don't have time to read all of them. Everybody got that one? All right. Now, that leads us to the new covenant, the new covenant. And the new covenant is covered where? Well, for Schofield, he doesn't point to Jeremiah. Remember, that was one of the confusing things about it. Okay, he points to Hebrews 8. That's why we're in Hebrews 8, right? Hebrews 8. And he start well, depending on where you want to look at this, he had the first time in his notes, it's right under verse 5, he puts, because Christ mediates a better covenant, right? And then that's because he quotes then verse 6, Hebrews 8, 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellency ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now, immediately, the new covenant then is contrasted with all the other covenants as being better. Everybody see that? All right, that's very important. Okay, then right under right underneath verse 6, he has this heading, the new covenant better than the old, and he has Hebrews 8, verse 7, all the way through chapter 10, verse 39. The new covenant is better than the old. Okay, now, underneath all of that, under the note, Schofield then has the new covenant summary. He's going to give us the new covenant summary. Are you ready? Here we go, because we have to move quickly, all right? The new covenant. Now, he's going to break these down. How many numbers does he give? I think he has seven points he wants to break down, because guess why? Because Schofield loves the number seven. All right, here we go. Number one, better than the Mosaic covenant. Better than the Mosaic covenant. How is the new covenant better than the Mosaic covenant? How is the new covenant better than the Mosaic covenant? Okay, well, okay, well, it condemns everyone, but he, he's, he's very specific here. He says it's better than the Mosaic covenant, not morally. It's not better morally. Efficaciously. Everybody see that? What does he mean by efficaciously? Yeah, what it does or it affects, because what is, what is the Mosaic covenant? What's its effect? Condemnation and death. The new covenant's effect is life, salvation. Okay, so that's the point he wants to drive home, all right? So that's number one. That's, this is, he's just breaking this summary down into number one. So number one, the uh, new covenant is better than the Mosaic covenant. Everybody got that? Number two, it's established on better unconditional promises. And the Mosaic covenant, God said, if ye will. And the new covenant, he says, I will. So number one, the new covenant is better than the Mosaic covenant because of what it affects, what it does, right? It brings life. It doesn't bring death. And number two, it's established on better promises. And how are these promises better? Mosaic covenant, what kind of promises were they? Conditional. And the new covenant, unconditional. Mosaic covenant said, if you will. In the new covenant, he says, I will. Everybody got that? Very important. Number three, under the, under the Mosaic covenant, obedience sprang from what? Faith. 
What motivated obedience in the Mosaic Covenant? Fear. Fear. Under the New Covenant, a willing heart and mind motivates obedience. Now, I would change it a little bit. I would change it this way, okay? This just, under the Mosaic Covenant, obedience sprang from fear. Under the New Covenant, it should spring from gratitude. Gratitude should motivate it. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 12, verse 1? Nobody can quote Romans 12, 1 from memory. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Why should motive? Because he's getting ready to do what in Romans chapter 12? Lay out all these practical things that you're supposed to do, right? Present yourself as a, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, on, chapter 13 is going to tell you to be subject to all the authority. Okay, well, if, if Romans is all broken down now in 12, going all these things you should do, and it talks about loving your enemy. I mean, I can go on. I can just, I can sit here and try to recite all of Romans in 12, 13 for you, but you get the basic idea. What the motivation for it is what? God's mercy. God's mercy. Now, what happens in the evangelical church? This is very important. What has the evangelical church done to this beautiful distinction between the Mosaic? What motivates something in the Mosaic covenant? Fear. In the evangelical church, what motivates obedience? I'm going to say fear. Because if you don't do these things, you prove you're not saved. It's just, it's the Mosaic covenant in disguise. It's not a better covenant if you come along and say, Hey, you better be doing. Hey, you you're not doing these things. I don't know if you're saved. I don't know if you're saved. I don't know if you're saved. That's you have to spend your life trying to prove what that you're saved by your obedience to the law, which was never designed to prove that you were saved, because the covenant was was set not to prove that you're saved, but to prove you're unsaved. Right. It's to prove your condition. So why would Christians, MacArthur or anybody else, come along and take the Bible and say, do this, do this to prove you're saved? You're just putting people right back under the Mosaic Covenant. It's the most ridiculous thing. I mean, oh, okay. All right, here we go. All right, so let's go through this again. So number one, the new covenant. Number one, better than the Mosaic Covenant. Not morally but because of its effect, right? What it does, right? Number two, established on better promises. The new covenant has unconditional promises. The Mosaic covenant had what? Conditional promises. In the Mosaic covenant, God said, if you will. In the new covenant, he says what? I will, all right? It's number three. Under the Mosaic covenant, obedience springs from fear. In the new, well, we're gonna put down gratitude, we're going to put down gratitude because I don't know how willing our heart and mind are always is, right? Is your heart always willing? No. So, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree a little bit there because guess what? I'm not bound by a system. Isn't it amazing what happens when you're not bound by a system? Okay. All right. Number four. The new covenant secures the personal revelation of the Lord to every believer. The new covenant secures the personal revelation of the Lord to every believer. Okay, that's interesting. We'd have to spend some time on that, but at least let's just write it down. The new covenant secures the personal revelation of the Lord to every believer. All right. Number five, the complete oblivion of sins. The complete oblivion of sins. Number six, it rests upon an accomplished redemption. Please note, it rests upon an accomplished redemption. The redemption's already accomplished. Nothing has to be done. It's already been done. Everybody see that? And number seven, and it secures the perpetuity, future conversion, and blessing of Israel. I love that so much. 
That's where me and Schofield would get along so great. What does he say there for number seven? It secures the perpetuity, future conversion, a blessing of Israel. And please note what he quotes, ladies and gentlemen. He quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 40. Why is that so wonderful? Why, why should we applaud and stand up and cheer? Because when he wants to try to apply any of this to us, he goes to Hebrews 8. But when he lays out all the different things the new covenant does, his last point is it secures the perpetuity, future conversion and blessing of Israel. And immediately goes back to Jeremiah 31, where the new covenant is specifically made with whom? Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In which way? Israel only, yeah. Well, it still pulls from, it still pulls from the old, right? But just remember, this is how it, remember, we, we talked about this in great detail if you don't remember. Okay, so God made a covenant with Israel, right? They get set aside, Right? So the time of the Gentiles fulfilled, the Gentiles start coming in and we, in a sense, participate or receive some of the blessings of the new covenant. Not the national part, obviously, right? But some of the salvific part. Sins being forgiven and those things. And then that us coming in does not do what? Abrogate, change, or lessen the national promises to Israel, because they have more than just the new covenant promises. They have the Abrahamic covenant, right? They have the Palestinian covenant. They have the the Davidic covenant. All right, so you have all of those. And then Schofield makes one last point here. We have to stop. Uh, The new covenant is the, now this is not a point. This is not a point. He just adds it. The new covenant is the eighth, thus speaking of resurrection and of eternal completeness. So. I don't like that at all. That's that new numerology stuff, and I don't know even how you would prove that. So I just ignore that, but just, just show that he said. That sometimes that's where he then goes beyond his own hermeneutic. See what he does? That, that's, that, that's, a, that's numerology and type. Oh, that, that it goes, I, I don't like that in any way, shape, or form. All right, but those points are pretty good. You may want to get those down. You want me to repeat them really quick. Number one, the new covenant summary, it is number one, it's better than the Mosaic covenant, not morally, but in its effect, right? Number two, it is established on better promises because the old, the Mosaic covenant, God said, if you will, in the new covenant, he says, I will. Number three, under the Mosaic covenant, obedience sprang from what? Fear. In the new covenant, gratitude is what we're going to put. We're going to put gratitude down. I know he quotes verse 10 here to try to prove his point, but we're going to put gratitude because I just, I don't, I don't know how else you work it. Number four, the new covenant secures the personal revelation of the Lord to every believer, which is kind of interesting. I, I think I think he's like, the law is just a general statement to everyone, do this! Where in the new covenant, we become the adopted sons of God. We enter into a relationship, I think is the, is the point there he's trying to make. All right, number five, the complete, it, it, it secures the complete oblivion of sins. Ultimately, all sin is dealt away with in Christ. In fact, reality speaking, as a Christian, all your sin has been, a, a, it's gone, right? Because you're in Christ Jesus. All your sins, past, present, and future have been what? Paid for by the blood of Christ. We, we say that, and then we turn around. Isn't it weird how we, we play such a, a, a mean game? Hey, All your sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future by the blood of Christ. But if you do these six things, you prove you were never saved. How could those six things prove I'm never saved if all my sins have been forgiven? You can't take my actions and say they prove I'm not saved if all of those actions have been paid for. That's that. When someone says that, they're saying that the blood of Christ doesn't actually forgive sins. They're actually denying the entire gospel. I mean, you can, you can try to make it as nice as you want, but there's nothing nice. I mean, 
with someone playing that kind of game, they're doing a really disservice to the word of God and it should bother you because the Bible says anyone who preaches a false gospel is anathema. And that's pretty close to a false gospel when you start telling people that. All right? Um, uh, you see, so the complete oblivion of sins. Next, it rests upon an accomplished redemption. And number seven, it secures the perpetuity, future conversion and blessings of the nation of Israel. I cannot stress that enough. That's, the, that's very few times that you will read in many, some Christian books, other than a dispensational, that the new covenant is about Israel. Ultimately, because most books immediately make it about us. Can't leave Israel out. All right, we have to stop there. That's all the covenants. That's all the dispensations. All we have left to do now is to do a little bit of overview and the basic points, and we'll try to do that tonight. For right now, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, thank you for us being in a place where we can work through all of these deep theological issues. Hopefully, we understand them. We know how to apply them. And we understand how our systems can impact the way we read your word. Forgive us when we allow it to blind us from your word. Help us see your word over our system. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...